My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is the pastor at Christkirk in Moscow, Idaho, the proprietor of Blog and Mayblog, and the chief firestarter of No Quarter November. Please welcome for his third appearance on the Renaissance of Men, Pastor Douglas Wilson. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. There's no such thing as an overnight success. That artist, author, athlete, or professional who just arrived on the scene and seems like the biggest thing ever was laboring for years or even decades before their moment. But that's with a book or a business or a blockbuster. How about with an entire town, a way of life, a rediscovery of old ways of living that got lost in the spear thrust of modernity. What then? Well, it's not really very different, only it's bigger, because a town involves others to make it happen. Long gone are the days of the mythical Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox, who together hewed out millions of tons of timber from North Dakota, laying a path for the American West and Canada to flourish. Unlike them, our civilization building is collaborative. Not only that, We no longer have to build with our hands and bodies in quite the same way. We labor more with our minds, hearts, spirits, carving out not just the what, but the why. The telos, if you will. Because the fatal flaw of modernity is that its own purpose, or telos, cannot be stated in the sunlight. Push hard enough on any secularist or leftist, and just before their pink beanie pops off or nose ring pops out, they'll say one of two things. Either life has no meaning and no purpose, which is atheist materialism, or human life must be bound in servitude forever to the goddess of almighty nature and her shifting gang of victims. As far as marketing angles go, if you were to state those out loud on a megaphone in the city square, everyone would laugh. They don't play well, which is why these pseudo-teloi hide behind nihilism, consumerism, and a globalism whose rallying cry is the ill-defined, quote, common good. These feel and sound really comfy on the surface, at least to the generations that have been as heavily propagandized as they have been vaccinated. Except, these teloi lead to climate lockdowns, drag queen story hour, 60 million aborted babies, central bank digital currencies, looting CVS instead of shopping, and whatever a Kylie Jenner is. The edgy among us call this trash world, which is the rotten fruit borne by the hidden root of the secularism and leftism which have dominated for decades. So, in that context of concealed and toxic teloi, we as men are faced with a challenge. Do we decry the actions of our civilizational enemies, or do we get started building something better? If the latter, what purpose or telos could possibly stand not just as the most righteous one, but also the one most likely to cause great offense to our opponents? Only one, the glory of God the Father. Now, what if a man, hypothetically speaking of course, were motivated by such a telos? What if he had a rather serrated wit and a gentlemanly sense of irony and humor? 
What if he had the gift of a work ethic and a father who passed down great lessons to him about how masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility? Now, what if we got that man started 40 years ago, taking one builder step forward at a time, carving civilization out of his own wilderness in a college town in Idaho, a bit like John Bunyan? And then, what if we gave that man a flamethrower? Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Pastor Douglas Wilson, and he's just such a man who chartered a course decades ago for Christ, for family, and for civilization, and now it seems his labors are paying off. He's written countless books, which you've probably read, and started schools you might have attended or even be applying to. You may have sat in his pews, listened to his sermons, and been blessed with the work of his children and maybe even his grandchildren. It's a pretty remarkable story, a pretty remarkable Christian story, in an age where it seems like there aren't many of those to look at. But again, like all good stories, it didn't happen overnight. And if his pirate flag emblazoned flamethrower taken to Elsa, Instagram, and Netflix is any indication, God willing, the ending won't be coming anytime soon. In fact, Pastor Wilson might just be getting started. In our conversation, we discussed his 40 years of preparation for war, the influence on him of George Gilder, Pastor Wilson's slow journey to Calvinism and postmillennialism, artificial versus natural men's initiations, the need for Christian unity, Jews as a high-performance people, and the things you'll probably never hear in a Mother's Day sermon. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. 2024 is taking shape, and I couldn't be more excited. You can enlist more people in the Renaissance by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, plus a five-star rating on Spotify. Plus, share this episode with a Christian feminist friend and see how quickly they'll freak out at the mere mention of Pastor Wilson's name and share it with your other friends, too. The Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee, purveyors of fine coffee beans hand-roasted in Springfield, Missouri by Pastor Brandon Lansdowne. Christmas is coming up, and the one thing that everyone loves for a gift is coffee, and it just so happens that Brandon and Reformation want to be your supplier for that special gift. Brandon also supplied the coffee for Grace Agenda 2023 in Moscow, whose videos are now being released on YouTube and Canon Plus. So you can think of this episode a bit like a family affair. Keep listening to find out more and for a special message about how you can help Brandon and Reformation playing in the middle of this podcast. While you're enjoying the show and waiting for that message, go to reformationcoffee.com and choose from India, Ethiopia, Brazil, or Guatemala Rose. And for the people on the naughty list, you can get them decaf too. Use the code SUBFREE to sign up for regular coffee delivery, and you can enjoy Reformation year-round and also get one free 12-ounce bag on the house. Again, go to reformationcoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE for regular coffee delivery, and you can get one free bag on the house. I'm literally ordering my own coffee right now. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, a man who writes for the same reason a dog barks and who has a pretty cool habit of setting things on fire, from Christkirk in Moscow, Idaho. Pastor Douglas Wilson. Pastor Wilson, thanks so much for joining me again on the podcast. Great to be with you. Thank you for the invite. So we cross paths in an auspicious month of no quarter November, and uh, we it'll do be this? weapons free with the flamethrower, <laughs> weapons free. <laughs> yeah. And I want you to know that I've done the reading. So I've read Mere oh. Christendom, Christ, I've done Mere Christendom, Christian Nationalism, and uh, George Gilder's book. So, okay. so we, All right. we can be looking forward to this discussion as well. 
So um, I think where I'd like to start to maybe introduce the discussion is something that I heard you say on, I think it was on the American Moment podcast or the New Founding podcast. It was one of those two, that you've been preparing for this fight for 40 years. Um, and I wonder if you can elaborate a bit on that. What fights, I mean, I think we can probably articulate what fight you've been preparing for, but how do you conceive of, of the fight and how, how has that conception changed over the past four decades? Okay, so th that's a great question. There's a, there's a place in That Hideous Strength where Dr. Dimble uh, is talking about how in any society or culture or company or whatever, everything is coming to a finer point. The good gets better and the evil gets worse. Everything becomes more defined. And the, the thinkers that I uh, appreciated a great deal back in the day were thinkers who were able to call the shot decades, hmm. and in some case, in the next century. Well, yeah. what's going to happen? Because they, they saw the internal logic of these ideas. You can't deny the existence of God and not have that catch up with you. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's, it's, going to it's going to be reflected in your laws at some point. So back in the Eisenhower years, let's say, uh, you could have people say, well, we're a secular country. We take no stand on whether God exists or not. And when you right after your statement, you look around and the sky is still blue and the grass is still green and the traffic is people are still driving on the right side of the road. Everything seems normal. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so everybody says, oh, I guess I guess secularism is right then. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you say. Well, yeah. all that is, is the prodigal son doesn't run out of money the first weekend away from home. Mm. He, he has been capitalized in his rebellion by his father's money. And, and what I mean by saying that we've been preparing for this for 40 years is that we, we knew that you can't spend like we're spending. You can't affirm the things we're affirming and at some point not run out of money. Uh, at, at a certain point, you're going to run out of the, all the moral capital that 1,500 years of Christendom bequeaths to you. You're going to run out of that money. And when you run out of that money, you're going to have drag queens reading to kids in the library, and all the normal people won't have an argument. They don't know what to say. Um, because they ran out of money. So you've got, you've always had the troubled people, you've always had the mentally ill people, and we've always had the pervs. That, that's not the new part. The new part is that all the respectable, decent rulers have nothing. They, they, they can't answer, they can't answer bankrupt. the maniacs. They're bankrupt, right? Mm -hmm. So you used a phrase in Mere Christendom, the trajectory of ideas. And this is kind of what you're talking about. You saw the trajectory of ideas. Correct. Oh, quite a while ago. Right. Okay. Was it, now, is this, is this the role that, that George Gilder played? Did he, he, it seems like he played a pretty fundamental role, especially having read the book, that this was a significant number of observations, observations that he made in sexual suicide and after. Yes. George Gilder was a big influence on me on calling the shot decades before it happened um, in, in the area of sexual roles, feminism, uh, that, that aspect of life. So Gilder has uh, been a big influence on economics and 
tech and other areas. But the big impact he had on me was when it came to understanding that men are dominant, they're going to be dominant, and the only choice you have is whether that dominance is going to be constructive or destructive. Mm-hmm. And feminism, what, what feminism has done, in effect, is outlawed masculine constructive engagement. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah. So we're, we're going to make, we're going to make positive, distinctively masculine contributions that are positive. We're going to outlaw those. And, and then everybody's astonished at the wreckage that is caused by the destructive dominance of males who can only be restrained by men. Right. Where are they going to get all the capable males to restrain all the capable males is the question right. that I ask today. Right. Yeah. Right. So maybe, um, because I'm just reading this book now, and I know it was uh, written in the 70s and the 80s and re-released in 1986. And so now here we are 27 years later, and he's basically articulating what has been the arc of my life as a man in many ways, learning these things by living through them and now just reading about them. When you read them originally, whenever that was, late 70s, early 80s, can you take us back to that moment and the impact in that immediate moment that that had on you, the way that the light kind of went off or went on, I suppose? Um yeah, it was, so I, I grew up in a Christian home and had a godly father and a godly mother, wonderful, just a wonderful home to grow up in. And, and I grew up in a positive world, Aaron Wren's positive world. Right. So Christianity was respected, honored, and, and then I had the real deal at home. So mm-hmm. consequently, I was not in a position where I had to uh, rethink, oh my, uh, you know, that's what a dad is supposed to do. I already knew that in my bones from my dad. But mm-hmm. what Gilder, I, I, I think, and I'm just reconstructing this long after the fact, what Gilder enabled me to do was to see how that positive world outside was not going to remain positive. Mm-hmm. It had to go the positive world, neutral world, negative world. It had to go that way because he who says A must say B. Yeah. You can't, you can't affirm this premise and this premise and this premise, and then somehow avoid the conclusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, going to, you're going to wind up in a mess. And so what we've wanted to do is sort of build out and live in a little bastion of normalcy. Mm-hmm. Um, we call positive it Sherwood world. Forest, positive world, our own little positive world. We mm-hmm. call it Sherwood Forest or the land of Goshen, um, and mm-hmm. and live live as though live as though we don't believe what Kant said. Live as though we don't <laughs> believe. Live as though we don't believe what Nietzsche did. Live, you yeah. know. So we're gonna we're gonna live like Christians, engage with one another like Christians. At the same time, we can understand why things outside our community are disintegrating because they have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For my listeners who aren't as theological, sorry, philosophically adept, uh, refer- referring to Kant and Nietzsche, maybe, maybe you can be specific okay. about those for those who may not be aware of what you're, you're talking about. Okay. Kant is, tried to um, propose sort of a patch job. Um, David Hume, another uh, Scottish philosopher, um, basically introduced radical skepticism into the world of philosophy. We, we, 
Mm-hmm. We can't know for certain that you caused the eight ball to go in the corner pocket because you, you just saw, you just saw one follow the other, but you mm-hmm. don't know that one caused the other. So he was a radical skeptic. Um, Kant attempted to solve the problem by sort of postulating a, a noumenal realm and a phenomenal realm. And the noumenal realm we have no access to, but it's up there. And we just sort of arbitrarily live by the categorical imperative, which is his variation of the golden rule. But there's no reason why. You know, it's sort of, it's just arbitrary. And then Nietzsche comes along and takes a wrecking ball to the whole, the whole apparatus. God is dead and we killed him. And mm-hmm. Nietzsche is the father of sort of the black pilt, um, mm-hmm. where there, mm-hmm. there is no God and embrace the consequences of that. The strong eat the, the strong eat the weak. Mm-hmm. So then the Sherwood Forest you built, sort of inspired a little bit by Gilder's book, was in response to some of these ideas whose trajectories you also saw. Yes. And mm-hmm. we, we want to live in a community where we live out our Christian faith and not just on Sundays. So mm-hmm. um, in, in North America, it's, it's, it makes sense where if you're living in a positive world um, and you, go, you find a good church, and everybody's doing decent, normal things, and you go to be encouraged in the Word on, on the Lord's Day, you can think, oh, this is normal. But place First, Memo- First Memorial Church, or whatever church it is, in the middle of Sodom. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And now you're in a, you go to church, and you worship, and you come out, and well, who's that mob on my front porch? And what's what are they doing? And how am I supposed to respond to this? So, what we've wanted to do is sort of create a um, alternative economy, create a culture, create a, a community where we live with one another and interact with one another all the time, and we do it like Puritans, not like monks. So, um, uh, in the medieval world, there was the, and the monks did a lot of good when they went off and built their monastery and they learned to do craft beer and they were, they invented a bunch of things, but the, these monasteries had one flaw and that is they, they had to be, um, supplemented by volunteers. They had to Mm -hmm. recruit what the Puritans did was they had sort of a monastic ideal only with marriage and sex. And when you have marriage and sex in your sold-out-for-Jesus community, what happens is kids. You have, mm-hmm. you have the challenge of the next generation, and then you have the challenge that presents itself to the people of God throughout the Old Testament of how do we, how do we transmit, transmit an understanding of, gen, of faithfulness generationally? So mm-hmm. how do we hand the baton to the next generation? And how do we labor such that the next generation is not the generation that takes all these things for granted, but rather is the generation that grows up understanding what we passed on to them and they stand on our shoulders. So the, the, the natural force of gravity means that the next generation is a little more slack. Mm-hmm. What you want is the next generation 
to be in eighth grade where you were in sixth grade. So this is kind of the, the embodied attempt to refute the good, uh, good men make hard times or strong men make hard times, strong men make good yeah. times, good times make you, it's kind of a refutation of that. How do we prevent that gravitational right. pull from taking over? Right. And it's not so much a refutation of that because that saying is very, very true. Yes. That's the, that's the gravitational pull that everybody has to deal with. Right. Mm -hmm. So if the, and you see it on the family level, mom and dad don't have a dime. They're poor as church mice during their college years. They make a nice living. By the time their kids are teenagers, everything's comfortable. Well, mm -hmm. that kid growing up with everything comfortable is being shaped by something different than what shaped his dad. Yes. And, and dad has to budget for that. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. And, and you want your sons to do hard things, you know, mm -hmm. you, and you want to provide for them and teach them, protect them, but not too much. Mm -hmm. So to get practical for just a minute, because I know that you uh, saw the documentary Fu Future Men is coming out soon. I enjoyed that book of yours. Uh, 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 what suggestions would you give to fathers today who are listening to this and they're grappling with this very question? They're struggling and okay, they don't have time to start a Sherwood forest of their own. How do they mm -hmm. begin to land these values down into their, their own kids today? Because they feel that gravitational pull, which in, in many ways is stronger than ever. Yes. Great question. There are <laughs> artificial, but it has been done. So mm. uh, let me give you an illustration of the kind of ethos. And I'm not saying every aspect of this is godly, but it represents a biblical set of values. Mm -hmm. um, in the First World War, um, you had, or even even as late as the Second World War, you had the blue blood blue bloods of the of our republic, the natural Republican small R small R Republican aristocracy, the mm -hmm. New England blue bloods. They were as likely to be, fly into combat as anybody else. Mm -hmm. Okay. George H.W. Bush was shot, shot down. George Gilder's father, he was a New England blue blood, was killed, in, was killed in action. In the First World War, what I started to say was you had all the, you know, it was a horrible, uh, horrible mess on the front. And, and Tolkien's vision of Mordor came from the battlefields of World War I. And you had men in trenches charging machine gun fire okay and yeah. and so what did so what did the aristocrats do in this in that war well the aristocrats were the officers and were not armed and they had a little swagger stick like a conductor's baton mm -hmm. and the officer the elite the aristocracy would put the swagger stick under his arm and lead the charge unarmed into machine gun fire <laughs> And that was the aristocratic ethos of authority, um, respect, honor in a society comes with responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, what yeah. you have in, in, and the responsibility is you take the hit first. You, you're, you're in front. You're, you, now, if you're bringing up your kid in suburban, cushy, middle-class America, you're, your teenage son grew up in a gated community. 
how, where is he going to learn that? Okay. Where is he going to learn that? Now, if, if I'm a dad in that situation, I would like him during his summer, I'll just make something up. I would like him during his summers going through college to work on an Alaskan fishing boat. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do something hard. Mm-hmm. You know, do something hard. Don't don't just say I'm going to have everything handed to me on a platter. Um, y- you want to, you know, work as a logger. Work with your hands. Do something that's physically demanding. Okay. In some mm-hmm. up up to a point, and it depends on how it's handled, and it depends on the coach. Athletics can also serve um, that. Uh, that role. There are, there are certain things that a young man cannot learn un- without throwing up by the f- side of the field. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Bas- basically, there are certain lessons that your body says no and the coach says yes. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you going to do what you have to do? Right. Th- th- those are the sorts of lessons. Now, it's historically anachronistic, but the saying took root that the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eden. So the the now mm-hmm. that's not po- that's not possible time wise. Right. But but the saying I think the saying is um, represents the truth that mm-hmm. that you have you have to teach your sons to take responsibility. You have to teach them to be tough when they don't feel like being tough. And it's really hard for them to learn how to be tough when they grow up cozy. Yes. That's almost the hardest lesson to learn because it's right. hard to enforce pain, necess- the necessary pain of growth on young boys. I think we may have lost some amount of cultural will to do that, to say like, I'm going to subject right. my son to righteous pain so that he can grow from it. That almost seems like an anathema idea to our safety culture, if nothing else. Right. Correct. And then you also have the influence of feminism, which, like it or not, yes. may have influenced mom. And mm-hmm. and mom wonders why you're being so tough on her her mm-hmm. sweet baby. Mm-hmm. Have one of the ideas that this makes me think of is is around men's initiation, and I find this, of course, it is it's in many pagan and tribal cultures. Did Christian cultures ever have their own form of an initiation? That's a question that I get all the time, and I don't have a good answer for it. But it sounds like one possible solution to this problem. Yes. I, I think um, I can't put my finger on one initiatory right. Okay. Yeah. That, that this is something that Christian cultures have done. But I do know that Christian cultures have um, participated in this. Um, uh, this kind of thing on the on the American frontier, the initiate the, the initiation was sort of going into the deep end of the pool. You're old enough to be a father. You've got a strong back, and there's forty acres to be staked out, <laughs> out, yeah. out, out uh, you know, j- just to the west here, and and so you were equipped if you, and you if you'd grown up hard, working hard on the on the homestead that your father had carved out, you were equipped to do the next thing. And so that would be not an artificial uh, initiation. The artificial initiation would be when you have um, uh, 
a, you're, you grew up in a civilized uh, society. And I think probably the uh, closest thing we had to something like that would be becoming an Eagle Scout. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You, yep. you've, been, you've been taught all these things, you passed it, and it, was, it wasn't a low bar either. The, 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 the way it's not like that is a true initiation would be something that comes to all the boys. Yes. You know, everybody has to do it. Collectively. So you would have to, collectively. And then, of course, the Boy Scouts went and flaked. And so to return to, so to, return to Sherwood Forest, I think it, it makes sense to me now, understanding the way that you see the trajectory of these ideas, going back to when you read Gilder, why you founded Logo School and New St. Andrews, asking the question and answering it with your own labor. How do we pass these values down to the next generation such that, as you said, we're in sixth grade, but they grow up in eighth grade, so to speak. Yeah, right. And so this vision, did it, have, did it, it just kind of took shape over time or did it, um, because I know a lot of people around the country really admire what you're, myself included, admire what you've accomplished in Moscow. And so when I heard you say you've been working at it for 40 years, that would be why. Did the vision arrive whole all at once or did you begin assembling it in pieces? I think the answer to that would have to be both. Uh, mm-hmm. So we, we began we began draining the swamp, Meta- metaphorically, we began draining <laughs> the swamp in the 70s. And okay. we had absolutely no idea how big the swamp was or how many gators were in it. Whoa. You know, we okay. Just, so so ba- basically, did we have the big picture when, I'll just put it another way. Did we have the big picture when we undertook this? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. You know. I knew that there was a big picture. I knew that I wanted to make a dent at that big picture level, but I could not have told you uh, all the ins and outs of it mm-hmm. at the time. That has unfolded over time. As the, so we began Logos School simply as concerned parents. We had kids and we knew that we weren't going to do the normal deal, having them educated by people who didn't, didn't fear God. We knew that we didn't want that. And we knew we wanted a Christian education. And we knew that we didn't want a truncated Christian education either. So that's why we went with classical. And so we got that box and we opened it up and there was all these, it was like a scavenger hunt. There were all these clues to something to, oh, this goes here and this goes here and this goes here. And you follow the clues from the scavenger hunt and pretty soon you're involved in all kinds of things, Eco- you know, economics, higher education, family culture, legal issues, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that one thing led to another. So our involvement as parents led me to, um, well, that's a long story, but I, I, <laughs> I unpacked, I unpacked the first thing I unpacked was, uh, optimistic eschatology. And then after that, okay, that was happened in the mid eighties. And then in the late eighties, I, uh, became a Calvinist because Mm -hmm. if I, if I wanted the Bible to apply to everything, if I wanted an in your face, God, (laughs) if you you know what I mean? Um, Yes, I do. I grew up Armenian, conservative, evangelical, baptistic, um, uh, surroundings. And, and I had a real deep prejudice against Calvinism, 
but our commitment to we want to start a school with scripture at the center and every, you know all basically all things relate back to the word of god and we wanted god involved in everything we wanted to teach every subject as parts of a coherent whole with scriptures <laughs> at the center well that led inexorably to calvinism and a kuyperian understanding of calvinism and then so I became a Calvinist, and then that led to covenant theology, where I became Presbyterian and paid a Baptist in the early 90s. So one thing led to another, and it really was a scavenger hunt. And if you had told, if you had told me in 1978, this is what you're going to be in 40 years, they, I would have said no. You know, I, <laughs> so uh, in certain respects, I knew what I was doing. I knew how the scavenger hunt was supposed to work, and I knew how to follow the clues. I did not know where I was going to wind up. That's that's incredible because I've I've learned so much from you from all these topics, and to see and to now understand the way they kind of fit together. There's this phenomenon people say, like, "Oh, overnight success." There's no such thing as an overnight success. It's just someone who's been working really hard in the background for a long time until the the batter rises, kind of all at once, and and. It's fascinating to hear all the way though. I was going to ask you about post-millennialism and, and when you came to that, because I, I listened to your um, evening of eschatology with John Piper and a couple others. And, and I don't know if you could want to comment on that discussion. It seems to have new relevance. YouTube served it to me in the, in the, in the algorithm. Some people are still are coming around to that today. Yeah, I, that evening of eschatology really had feet. Um, I, hear about it, I hear about it regularly. It keeps coming back around. Um, so when I, I, I was involved in, we started at Logos School in 80, 81, and I was by that time pastor of a church, and I had read Charles Finney, who in the circles I had grown up in was something of a hero, a second great awakening Charles Finney. And I, um, I read his, a book of his on revival and was kind of put off by it, really a actually appalled by it. And they, so I just sort of shelved the idea of revival. Okay. Okay. Reformation, that, if that's revival, deal me out. Um, and then as a result of various um, things I was reading, I came across, I, well, I, I'd grown up generically pre-mill, not ever dispensational, but sort of a historic pre-mill kind of nebulous, but mm -hmm. at, at some point, I probably for two or three years, I would guess, I jettisoned ev all eschatological anything. I, I, I would read my Bible, and I couldn't get my—I knew what the pre-mill system was generally, but I couldn't get it to fall out of the text, to come out of the text at me. Mm -hmm. So I, I shelved it. I said, okay, I'm not anything. Um, and I was a pastor by this point, and I remember telling someone, look, Jesus is coming again, and don't push me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all I'm going to say. Jesus is coming again, and, and I can't tell you. After that, I've got nothing. And so I was an agno-millennialist for two or three years, okay? And, and I would read things in the Psalms, and I remember writing in the margin, Post mill question mark not even being sure what that was, and 
and I, I was reading also during this time because I, I wanted to understand how scriptures engaged with everything. The only people talking about that at the time were the Reconstructionists. And the, the Gary North, Rusas Rashtuni, uh, uh, Greg Bonson, those guys. And so I was, I was reading a good deal of the Reconstructionists because of their, they were willing to apply scriptures to banking and apply scriptures to education. and apply, So I was hungry for that. And I was reading one of these uh, guys. It was David Chilton's book on eschatology. And his hermeneutic was a little bit too gaudy for me, of you know, a little too um, oogly boogly. Um, and <laughs> it's a technical term. Uh, yes, technical. Uh, yes. And but I was reading along, and I, I he quoted First Corinthians fifteen, and this was probably eighty five thereabouts, and he he quoted this verse for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And when I read that verse, something snapped in my head. It was like, like a psh. And it was like one of those transformer thingies assembling in my head. It was like all these verses that I knew and it sort of set aside or shelved, everything just sort of assembled in my head because Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. He's going to remain there. He's going to, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Well, once Jesus, and then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, the, the way I'd been taught in premillennialism, when Christ comes back, the first enemy to be destroyed is death. But Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he's going to destroy all the antecedent enemies from his throne in heaven which is the essence of post-millennial thinking right there. So that, that's what happened uh, in the mid-'80s. It was very exhilarating and, speaking honestly, a whole lot of fun. Um, it, was, <laughs> the, it can be fun. Other, uh, it can be fun. Now, becoming a Calvinist was no fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to hear about that. So, so I, don't, I don't want to act as though paradigm shifts are all about fun. Postmillennialism was fun because it was a shift from pessimillennialism. The world's going to hell. There's nothing you can do about it. God, unfortunately, got himself involved in a land war in Asia, and we're, we're blunder. a classic blunder, and we're going to be helicoptered out of Saigon any minute now, right? That yeah. That's how evangelicals think they're waiting for god's helicopters and and then they just bide their time and and don't try to engage with anything well that had that's all gone and all of a sudden we're involved in a long-term battle that we are going to win and and that completely inverts your outlook on everything now we're very or i i have come to believe that we are we are still today part of the early church, and mm -hmm. uh, future school children will be studying for their church history test. And th this semester was the early church, and they're going to be trying to remember. 
And they're going to try to remember who lived first. Was it Athanasius or C.S. Lewis? Mm-hmm. I, I always get those guys confused um, because they have, to, they have to learn out of a book. Well, that being the case, we can have some pretty gnarly enemies, dr- dragons to slay. Mm-hmm. So when, when the Allies landed at Normandy on D-Day, it was ferocious fighting. But once the beachhead was established, the war was over. Mm-hmm. And, and thinkers in the West knew that the war was over, knew that we were going to win it, and were making post-war plans. Uh, hmm. uh, and, and so, in fact, even C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength has a reference in it to uh, Mrs. Dimble says to Mr. Dimble, Dr. Dimble, oh, it's almost as though we'd lost the war. The, that book was written like in 43 um, mm-hmm. and, and published during the war. So there was an expert. We knew that the beachhead was established. So post-millennialism doesn't discount the fact that we have a lot of fierce dragons to slay. What we're saying is the beachhead is established and it's in, in principle done. I completely agree. I mean, it may not necessarily look that way, you know, from from a right. casual observer standpoint, but certainly there's a feeling, there's a feeling there that feels something, something important, significant has been accomplished despite Drag Queen Story Hour, despite, right. you know, all of that. Hi, everyone. I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about courage. The well-known slogan of the Reformation is Semper Reformanda, always reforming. That idea should be inspiring to every man, or woman for that matter, seeking to improve in anything. Aren't we all seeking to improve ourselves, to grow, expand, learn, and reform into better versions of who we are? Theologically, I think that idea should also be inspiring. We seek to grow in maturity in terms of our faith and practice. As husbands, fathers, and leaders, we have to. Our people, including wives, children, employees, and even loyal listeners like you, are counting on us to be a couple steps ahead because we can only lead through places we've already been. I take that responsibility seriously. As you've heard many times, your time and attention is a gift to me, and I treasure it. Thank you. But this message isn't about me. It's about Brandon Lansdowne, founder and head roaster of Reformation Coffee. As you've probably heard me say a few times, he's also a pastor, the head of a flock. And as a man who runs a coffee company called Reformation Coffee and who's a pretty fit guy himself, he clearly takes the core ideas behind Semper Reformanda seriously also. It's why we're such good friends. But taking that seriously sometimes has consequences. You see, recently, like many people, including me, he's been exploring the topic of infant baptism. And like me and even Pastor Wilson many years ago, Brandon came to understand the worldview behind it. He was convicted, you might say, as I was, by one of the same sources. Jared Longshore's wonderful book, The Case for the Christian Family. Now, I'm not going to litigate the opposing views here. I am not qualified to have that debate in a way that would be edifying to anyone. However, the shift is a real thing, and Brandon went through it. Now, as a pastor and semi-public figure, that has certain consequences, because as I'm discovering, Team Baptist and Team Presbyterian are real things, with often bitter rivalries. That exploded a bit last week, embroiling Brandon by name following a post on Twitter that he made about the issue and making a transition that had already impacted his faith, his family, his church, and now his reputation online. But here's the thing. This is courage. This is what it looks like. This is what it moves like. 
It was Brandon's courage to say that he was always reforming and that he takes that duty seriously as a father and a leader. Now here's why I'm telling you this. It also shows up in his job as a coffee roaster because how you do the important things is how you do everything. Forrest Cooper and I a couple weeks ago defined a strong man and a good man as a man able to go beyond himself. A weak man never has the thought and therefore cannot be good. Brandon, in a moment where it counted, had the strength to go beyond himself, and that to me means everything. Now, if I could have it all my way, you'd reward Brandon by supporting his coffee endeavors by going to Reformation Coffee and ordering a bag or two as a salute. But he didn't do it for financial gain. He did what he did because it was right. So, if visiting Reformation Coffee isn't your choice, that's completely fine. Then I'd ask you to do something else. Please pray for him. He might need that more. Pray for Brandon's continued courage. Pray for his strength. Pray for growth in his leadership, peace to his heart, and that once these fires die down, that he will not have been burned, but forged. Thank you for being an example to me, Brandon, my brother. May all of us drinking your coffee now, and even those of us who aren't, raise a heartfelt toast and battle cry to you. Semper Reformanda. So, so let's. I want to transition to talking about Christian nationalism and and, and mere Christendom, okay? Um, because this seems to be the the big one of the big hot topics of dragons to slay is the the dragon of select secularism as it shows up for the moment in in the government sphere. So, right. let's start with let's start with the Wolf Book. I the way that I see the Wolf Book, and I don't know that the that the Twitter dialogue sees it this way, is someone has finally put forth a positive vision for what a Christian nation can look like. Right. Not saying, no, not that, no, not that. He put forth a, forth a solid brick, positive vision, and subjected to critique, which I think is an incredibly brave thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he, and Wolf is operating, he has a real grasp and understanding of the political theory of the Protestant reformers. Mm-hmm. And, and basically yeah. what he's doing is he is laying out the political theory of the Protestant reformers in modern dress, and there are places there are places where I would take issue. He's he's a Thomist, and I'm not a Thomist, and you know things like that. But he knows he knows the Protestant reformers. He knows their political theory, and he knows how out of step with that political theory the modern heirs of the Reformation actually are, and that's that's one of the mm. reasons for the freak out freak out responses <laughs> so he's put his finger on something that he can actually see that they're out of step when perhaps in the past it was a little bit more hidden yeah so if um so let's tie this in with um um at least as far as i'm concerned i'm post mill i'm not, i don't think wolf is but um but i'm mm-hmm. post mill all mill i think yeah. he said and uh, i grew up but well i I sort of came to a more mature understanding of my Reformed faith by reading a bunch of Banner of Truth books. So the Banner of Truth mm-hmm. guys did a valuable service by reprinting the Puritans, and they got a lot of the Puritan stuff back in print. And God bless them for that. It was just really, really good. Mm-hmm. But they didn't do that. They didn't do it with the Puritans' political theory. Um, <laughs> right? So... Um, hmm. If you're a modern, if you're seems significant, yeah. If you're a modern Protestant Reformed type, and you have a steady diet of Puritans mediated to you through Banner of Truth, you're going to get, it's going to be Pietistic and lopsided. 
okay? Because mm-hmm. the, the Puritans mm-hmm. were great devotional writers. Watson was. Rutherford, the, letter, the letters of Samuel Rutherford, uh, sorted devotional heights. But then if you read Lex Rex, also by Rutherford, you're going to think it was two different men. Um, mm-hmm. Well, he's, So he is an advocate of Protestant resistance theory, and he goes to deep dive. And, and, and so if your only experience of Rutherford is the loveliness of Christ or the letters of San, Samuel Rutherford, it's going to be cockeyed. You're, you're not going to understand mm-hmm. how earthy and engaged with their nations the Puritans were. Okay, now, um, mm-hmm. and you could go. You could make the opposite mistake. Also, you could be a political junkie and just read the Puritans on politics. But what the Puritans were were, were they were full orbed Christians. They were Christians when they wrote literature. They were Christians when they made beer. They were Christians when they built towns and developed civic mechanisms for governing themselves. They they were Christians first and foremost everywhere. And that's simply what Christian nationalism is. Can, Can I be a Christian while I'm articulating my political theory? Is it, is it relevant at all? Yeah, is, is all things under his feet mean all things or all things? Does that not include the government somehow? Like, how, what do we mean when we say all? Right. This is this is why the, the Christian nationalist conclusion, whichever way, it, whichever a positive picture you paint, because you can someone else could write a book that paints a different picture of Christian nationalism, and I encourage them to write that 500-page book and to get started soon. Yeah. They could put forth a different picture, but certainly Wolf has done, when I was reading it, a remarkable job of saying, this is how it could work based yes. on my understanding of these things. Yes. Yeah. And no one's really put forth another positive vision of that, which I, found, I find to be odd. Right. They've, and the reactions to him has been largely a matter of misunderstanding or misconstruing mm-hmm. or calling names, saying he's a racist or, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah, that was that was actually something that I noticed with the Gilder book as well. Having read both these books myself and to see these little tiny slivers of, of almost nothing that have been blown up to these gargantuan proportions to slander an entire intellectual work is, yeah. it's been a little shocking to see that for myself. Yeah. Shocking. <laughs> well, because <laughs> having read the... Yeah, shocking is a Go good ahead. word. Shocking is a good word for it. Yeah, it all, it all, it. I mean, it. I, I, it, it seems unfair, at least in the case of the Gilder book. But, but we can, we can talk about that right. separately because that was just such a such an incredibly based book. So, um, so, so the the positive vision of of Christian nationalism that that Wolf puts forward, how, where do you see that locating in sort of the post millennial vision, the Sherwood Forest? Kind of vision is this? Is this? Is it meant to be a rallying flag that everyone can get behind? Is it meant to be something like read this and let it stimulate your own thought? How does it fit into the into the bookshelf or into the, into the pantheon? I guess maybe not pantheon. Um, so I would I would say that one of the things that gives me hope is looking at the looking at the disarray of clown world. In the long run, mm. in the long run, stupidity never works, and. At, mm-hmm. at some point, people are going to be brought up short with the reality of stupidity doesn't work. When, mm-hmm. when three or four or five blue states go bankrupt, you know, all is, you know, like Mar- Margaret Thatcher once said, the problem with socialism is that sooner or later, 
you run out of other people's money. And, mm-hmm. and then all the bills come due and people, uh, and you, you hit the wall and someone's going to say, uh, I someone made a joke about the mess in Israel. I saw a joke on Twitter where someone said, I just, I just saw an ad, an army recruiting ad that featured a white heterosexual male. I guess we are going to war. <laughs> saw that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in, in, in other words, if you're, if you're, re- <laughs> if you're recruiting ads are featuring black woke lesbians to get people to join the army, the, 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 the lesson that I would draw from that is that this is a country that is currently facing no threats, whatever. Okay. At some point it, it gets serious. At some point you don't have the, the luxury of all the social engineering experimentation. So um, mm-hmm. I, I, I was in the Navy and served in the submarine service. And since I got out, some genius decided to start put, putting women on submarines, which is about yeah. the dumbest idea ever. And, yeah. and second only to putting women on surface ships. Yeah. Just, but the only the only reason that works is that we're not at war. Um, right, right. As as soon as mm-hmm. an existential threat arises, all of a sudden these, um, um, what Nietzsche experiments are going to be t- far too costly, and so what what I see happening is the collapse of the secular ideal, and in certain sectors, well, this has happened at least a couple times in history, when Constantine made, opened up, made, made Christianity legal, and then Theodosius made it, it the re- religion of the empire. The reason, the reason Constantine did that, and I'm not questioning whether he was sincere in his Christian faith or not, but there were political pressures on him to do this. Mm-hmm. And the political pressure was that Rome was falling apart. Okay. And as an emperor of this big shambling giant, um, he looked at the Christian church, which had, which was a universal small C Catholic church, bishops from all over the uh, world meeting in, in, uh, in concert to discuss things. They had something that Rome did not have. And mm-hmm. what happened was Rome essentially gave up and handed the keys to the Christians. Now, and I think the same thing happened in the Puritan Revolution in England, where the Puritans took over for a while because the previous regime just sort of ran out of gas. They just um, couldn't do it. I think we're headed for a similar moment. I believe that hmm. because because it's a global thing, there will be parts of the globe that where the secularists don't run run out of gas. They can keep going for a while, but there will be places where um, they say we give up, um, and Christians are going to be in a position if they've thought through these things, if they've if they've read up on it, if they've read Wolf, and mm-hmm. if they've read my uh, Mere Christendom book, and they're, they're engaged with these things, they're going to be perhaps 
more ready for prime time than we've been in some of the previous eras when we 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 found ourselves running the show before we were quite ready. So this is this is this leads to mere Christendom, which which I took as sort of a rallying cry for a reinvigorated Christian spirit against our the sort of secularist secularist pagan energy of our age. Like where how can we reinvigorate the masculine Christian spirit active to get out into the world and to take dominion? Yes. Very much so. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 it begins with recognizing that secularism is bankrupt. They they mm-hmm. secularism cannot give an account of itself. Why do you think there are so many Christians that are still holding on to this notion of what seems to be a, a secular, a neutral space? I saw your response video to Owen Strand, and I, I found it striking that he would suggest that there's still some neutral space out there. Are are we yeah. not clear that that doesn't exist? Yeah. So um, when he's when Owen says things like "I believe in democracy," and then a few d- days later, a democratic referendum in Ohio puts abortion abortion into the constitution of Ohio. So is that, I don't believe in democracy. I believe in righteousness. Democracy is a mechanism. Mm -hmm. A republic is a mechanism. A monarchy, a constitutional monarchy is a mechanism. The standards of righteousness are not to be found in any mechanism. You can have a tyrannical king. You can have a just king. You can have a just society voting in just laws or a, a rogue society voting in an unjust law. Um, so mm-hmm. the idea that, I, now going back to your question, the reason I think Christians are still somewhat enamored of secularism is that in, the, in this pretended neutral world, the, the, there's a pretend, the secularists have told us, um, well, there's, there's a realm of neutrality. And Christians said, oh, okay. And then we go into the realm of neutrality. And when Christians operate in the realm of neutrality, because they're Christians, they obey the rules. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. They, they say, okay, we agreed to be neutral, so we'll keep Christianity out of it. Uh, you yeah, know, get it. We're going to, we're going to, we'll mm-hmm. run on this, we'll be in the school board and we'll be involved in the PTA and all of this stuff. Um, and we'll keep our Christianity out of it. And the secularists agreed to keep their paganism out of it, but they, they break their word. Okay. So yep. we've been showing, we've been showing up at the, at the soup kitchen. Right. Um, and, and we don't, and we keep bringing our ingredients and they bring their ingredients and we agree that it's all neutral. Right. But they've been lacing the food with cocaine. And and they've been doing it for decades, and they they cheat, right? Well, the Christians don't cheat. Mm-hmm. The Christians said, well, if you let Christians have a secular space, Christians could run a secular space, and we'd keep it decent. Yeah, because that mm-hmm. that would be because you're just doing all your Christianity stuff off budget. You you you're still doing it. Right. Right, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so that's why I think Christians think that secularism could work, because if people like Owen ran the quote-unquote secularism, you the pretense could be kept up for a while. But it's not people like Got Owen. It. It's, it's not people like Owen. It's people who hate God. It's it's a little bit like Lucy and Linus with the football. 
right? You got the lioness going to kick and Lucy just pulls it away every time. Like, you know, it's like, no, there never was any neutrality. Well, maybe there was for a time, hard to say, but certainly now there's not. I would only, certainly I, now there's a, I would only differ you with you by saying it's not a little like Lucy in the football. It's exactly like Lucy in the football. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so what what do you think it will take, or what what would you like for it to take for Christians to recognize that this is what's going on, and for Christians to begin showing f- up in force in all the ways of their life that are meaningful? It may not necessarily be political engagement in terms of the civil magistrate. It may be in their workplace. It may be in their families. It may be in their communities. It doesn't necessarily necessarily have to be everyone is a single focused effort towards one specific aim. Yeah. What sort of things would be necessary to invigorate Christian men and women and families to begin that dominion-taking process throughout the country in the ways that they feel called? Yeah, everything begins at home. Um, it begins in the area. I just, I'm not. Re- I'm not required to begin by ch- changing or fixing the things I can't reach. I, mm-hmm. I I need to begin where where I can reach. I need to get my my family to worship God on a weekly basis. I have to bring up my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I have to gather together with like-minded Christians where I live, and I need to have loyalty to the, the larger project. And if you're a Christian leader, a pastor, a blogger, some sort of one of those guys, um, the, the, the way to start, the place to start is by avoiding and resisting the temptation to give way to turf wars. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so the last thing in the world we need is for secularism to start falling apart and for the Christians to start fighting each other. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah, I used to years ago, and I think, I think that's probably the gravest temptation I think we are facing right now is strife between Christians in yeah. a in the day when secularism is disintegrating. Years ago, I I said um, I defined an evangelical in North America, and this is a very broad definition. But an evangelical in North America is someone who likes Billy Graham, and a reform sure. a reformed Christian in North America was someone who liked R.C. Sproul. And, and I wondered at the time what was going to happen when uh, both those uh, men went to be with the Lord, when, when there's no longer that rallying point or that point of identification. And I'm afraid that too many Christian leaders in the evangelical world and then also in the Reformed world lined up to be the replacement you know, oh, interesting. okay. I've who's gonna who's gonna carry mm-hmm. the mantle? Who's gonna take the man? Who's gonna be the Elisha to that Elijah? And mm-hmm. and then when it turned out that more than one person thought of himself that way, strife began between them. And so I think mm-hmm. Christian leaders ought to remember what the Lord uh, Jesus did with the disciples when a dispute arose among them as to who was going to be the greatest. Um, don't think like that. Don't think like that. Don't think like that. That's. I'm so glad that you said that, because I think the challenges that we faith, face as Christians and also as men mean that different different men will be called forth to lead in different ways. 
mm-hmm. there is not one central single figure yeah. outside of Christ. But here on earth right now, we all are called in different ways to lead and no one has to be called the greatest to lead. Right. That's the, and there's that's no a big, a big part. Go ahead. There's no one correct way of doing it. Um, there's the army does not need ships. Right. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. You know, so um, my dad wrote a book called Principles of War, applying military principles of war to spiritual warfare. And one of them was cooperate. One of the principles is cooperation. And uh, mm-hmm. it's it's great for West Point and Annapolis to have the annual Army-Navy game. It's great to have that kind of competitiveness on the football field. But when a war starts, mm-hmm. you don't want that competitiveness to carry over. You want the Navy and the Army to be coordinated and thinking of themselves as on the same side. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I've observed is sometimes in, in Christian communities around theological distinctives and things like that, there can be a sort of intolerance for ambiguity that both people have to work for. Exactly like you said, we both have to be able to make forward progress knowing that we disagree on things like infant baptism, right. for example. And and there seems to be this need like, no, we have to decide who's right. It's like, not necessarily right now. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> so what advice? Go ahead. Yeah, let's join together. Baptists and Presbyterians join together to get the bad guys to stop killing the babies. And then after we've, <laughs> and then after we've saved the babies' lives, then we can discuss whether or not they should be baptized. Mm-hmm. It almost it almost seems like a, a bit of like missing the point of wanting to you know, sort of pop out into a spiritual discussion instead of having on-the-ground practical discussion of getting our hands dirty. Right, exactly. So um, I also I also caught the discussion that you had last night, uh, Andrew Isker and, uh, and Joe Rigney, about your, about your upcoming book. Yeah. Now, this was of particular interest to me because I, I actually grew up Jewish. Oh. So, yeah. so, I, I, so I watched that with, with great interest. And right. um, so I wonder if you could talk about your upcoming book. I was really pleased to hear that there are a lot of things that you un- seem to understand about the upbringing that I came up through and the community that I passed through. Much longer discussion, but talk a bit about your upcoming book as well. Yeah, the, the book is released now. It's called American Milk and Honey, and the subtitle is, let's see if I remember, The, um, the Promises of Deuteronomy and the True Israel, Anti-Semitism, The Promises of Deuteronomy and the True Israel of God. So basically— Lightweight topic. Light, yeah. and, and so <laughs> consequently, in the book, I'm all over the road. I'm addressing all kinds of different things, like what is supersessionism? Well, for Christians, mm-hmm. that is the view that the church is Israel now. Okay, the the mm-hmm. heir of all the promises, the promises of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, are the present possession of the Christian church. Now, there's hard there's hard supersessionism, which says, and that means the Jews are nothing special anymore. They're just they're just another mm-hmm. ethnic ethnic group. And then there's what I call soft supersessionism which is the historic Reformed view, which is that at a certain point, Israel is going to come back to the Messiah, they're they're going to trust in Christ, and that's going to be the key to world evangelization. Okay? Um, Romans 11, right? Romans 11. So the Romans 11 argument, and then in in the modern Reformed era, there's a, a preterist take on Romans 11, which Andrew Isker was representing in our discussion. But I'm I'm following the classic Reformed 
uh, view of Romans 11, which is that the evangelization of ethnic Israel is going to be the key to world evangelization. But then there are the geopolitical issues. What do you think of Israel as a nation state and the founding of Israel in 1948? Then there are the, is what is Judaism exactly? Is there such a thing as the Judeo-Christian tradition? You know, what is Mm -hmm. that? And I have a chapter on the Talmud, uh, two chapters on the Talmud, Mm -hmm. actually. One of them looks at all the horrendous things that are in there, and there's some pretty bad things in there. And then uh, yeah. I also have a chapter looking at the, some of the glorious things that are in the Talmud mm-hmm. that, the, that rabbis over the centuries have seen and exegeted, and they're treasures that Christians can benefit from. Um, so, there's, mm-hmm. so there's that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the, probably the centerpiece of the, of, the, of the book is what I regard as the Pauline strategy for winning the Jews. So, and this is under the anti-Semitism point, the the Hamas attack on Israel, and then Israel reacting, and then the leftist protests in London and New York and D.C., where they're just unabashedly embracing Hamas, is mm-hmm. is flabbergasting to, to what, mm-hmm. what on earth is going on. And then some on the right, there's an alt-right, um, black-pilt contingent of anti-Semitism that sort of joined in. And I'm trying to, so in the book, I address that, where is this coming from? And when you, when I talk to someone who's anti-Semitic, usually online, where someone says, Jews, yeah, the Jews are doing all these awful things. The Jews are running the pornography industry and the Jews are in positions of influence in all the, you know, the George Soros globalism world in the, um, in the banking world and all, you know, they've done all these awful, awful things. And my response to that is, look, the Jews, for all sorts of historical reasons, are a high performance people. They are less than 1% of the world's population. And if you look at their patents, at their Nobel Prizes, at the, you know, musical accomplishments. It's just, it's a disproportionate impact for positive things. And when you have Jews from that culture who go over the dark side, they're going to have a disproportionate impact over there too. So when Mm -hmm. Andrew said several times in our discussion that he, a lot of the people he deals with are just tired of not being allowed to point certain obvious truths out like like a bunch of the bolsheviks were jews that's historically mm-hmm. true and so i'd say yes so why can't i why can't i point out the disproportionate number of brain surgeons among the jews why can't i point out the disproportionate number of nobel prize winners well now all of a sudden you're you're using facts as a cudgel instead of facts as something you want to take you want all of the facts on board and then sort them out and say, what's the, what's the truth here? And, and I think, so I, so this leads up to the, um, the Pauline strategy, the high, the high performance, um, nature of the Jews is a performance sort of thing. It's a, it's a law thing. Um, it's a Jewish mother thing. So <laughs> you will take violin lessons 
and you will be yes and you will be good and you in fact you will be the best in show and you know it's so mm -hmm. there's a there's a, a centuries long ethos of that kind of thing and paul in romans says that god pours out his grace and his blessing on gentiles as a way of provoking his people to jealousy all right and mm -hmm. and paul knew his people his kinsmen according to the flesh he knew that this was a people upon whom that strategy would work all right um so where on earth so if you have this gentile christian nation prospering under the blessings of deuteronomy how are the jews going to react to that and and the the type that i set up uh, in the book is the wonderful parable that is provided by that great movie chariots of fire um because mm -hmm. in chariots of fire you have a christian runner and um eric little and Jewish runner Howard Abrams, and and they they're both Olympians. They they both are excellent. They both are wonderful runners, and one is under grace and the other is under law. Um, Abrams is just driven, um, just simply driven. And Little says, "When I run, I feel his pleasure." Um, it, it's sort of like God's grace is on him, and so what I want. And I think what the Apostle Paul would want is for Christians to stop being semi-Gnostic, to stop thinking that our salvation is an airy-fairy kind of thing, and to start living under God's earthy blessings, and at the center, at the center of which are the spiritual blessings of salvation and forgiveness and new covenant and everything. But the blessings of Deuteronomy have to come in. So uh, that's what this book is about. You asked for the time, and I'm giving you the history of watchmaking. But the, the um... <laughs> sorry. Well, I'm I'm glad that you you gave me that metaphor because um, I, you know I, again I grew up Jewish, bar mitzvah, birthright Israel. That's a whole. So I I ran under law for a very long time. Right. And you're absolutely right about it being a high performance culture. Like you right. you will do well. Period. Right. This is not a negotiation. Right. Um, and that comes with a very high cost. Yeah. And I was uh, very blessed to to learn what it is now to run under grace. And you've been one of my finest teachers in that regard. Oh. So to hear you reflect that and your understanding of the Jewish people, and then also to read Romans for myself and to and to read that and to understand Paul's story reflected in my own was was a very moving moment for me in, in my faith journey. Great. So I appreciate you tackling these topics. Well, I I think that you will en enjoy the book. I hope so. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that's the case. Yes. Um, do you have time for just one more personal yeah. question? Yeah. Quasi-personal question? Okay. Sure. So recently, um, this is this is kind of uh, to go back to the Calvinist. I, I listened to your book, uh, Easy Chairs and Hard Words. Yeah. And uh, at the at the end of that book, which was marvelous, at the end of that book, there's a the I guess the the pastor that the the question that the, the parishioner is coming to ask questions of relates the story of a man who understood the Christian faith better than oh, yeah. the evangelist yeah. did. Did that, did that really, was that a real story? Did that really happen? Or was that a, a made up scenario? That, that felt like it might be real. Yeah, that, that was, um, I would say it's, it was a fictional story, but it was the kind of mm -hmm. thing where, um, had, ha, there, there were places in my life where had that happened to me, I would have been, uh, stupefied. I would have been wiped out. Um, just mm -hmm. like the pastor was. In other words, it was fictional, but 
close to home. And so for a man who might be in that position now of, of beginning to examine all of these different issues, post-millennialism, dominion taking, Christian nationalism, et cetera, everything that we've covered, even Calvinism versus Arminianism, where would you recommend a man like that begin? Because one thing I know for sure is that Jared Longshore's little book, The Case for the Christian Family, is having a massive influence throughout my circles. It's driving many people to begin asking sincere questions about uh, pedo-baptism, begin moving in that direction. Right. As an example, where would you invite men to begin? Because I think a lot of people, these questions are up. How do we reformulate our own worldviews to begin building for now and for the future? Even though we're in the early church, how can those men, where can they start to begin building? So I would say it, um, it would depend on where they are. So for example, if mm -hmm. they're teens, I would start them on future men. If they're young, single college, probably the same, probably future men. If they're young, mm -hmm. married, you know, if they're been married for less than two years, I would start them on reforming marriage. If they're, you know, it, it would say, okay, this would go back to what I said earlier, start where you are, you know, um, mm -hmm. and say, okay, how can I bring reformation and dominion thinking to where I am in this moment. Okay. So if I'm, mm -hmm. um, if I'm single and I want to get married, how, how do I do that in a way that honors God? If, if, mm -hmm. if I want, if I'm single and I don't want to inflict myself on a girl yet, but I want to, <laughs> I, I want to get things squared away so that I could, how, what do I do to get things squared away? Um, if mm -hmm. I've got three kids already, what do I do with that? That so a lot of it all depends. I would say, but I would say the range of um, the for most men, I would say the the suite of family books that that we have, um, you know, um, and things that obliquely relate. I've got a small book: Why Christian Ministers Must Be Men, um, Federal Husband things like that. Basically, the masculinity um, works would be the place mm -hmm. for most to start. And if you were a young man who was getting to a place where he was beginning to lead a woman who's asking these questions for herself, and maybe he's a couple steps ahead, and they're not yet anything yet, where might, what book might, might you recommend <laughs> for that man? You know a guy? <laughs> Hypothetically. <laughs> Am I asking for a friend? Yeah. So what I would do is I would there um, go... Um, look for the counterpart. So, um, mm. so we have a bunch of books for, for women with my daughter's book, even exile. Um, my other daughter's book, loving the little years, um, and, and you who, and then on domestic stuff, my wife's book, the fruit of her hands and praise her in the gates. And so basically you, if, if you're interested in a, in a girl, a guy should say, is this description of Christian marriage attractive to you or does it repel you? And there's, mm. there's generally th three, um, three possible responses. One is it totally attracts me. I, I, this is, you know, give me, tell me more. The other is it repels me. I just, oh, which uh, is a <laughs> feminist identifier. And and then mm -hmm. there's the middle area where I'm really attracted to it, but I don't think it's real. Okay, this mm -hmm. would this seems too much like a fairy tale. 
like I'm dancing with the prince in the Cinderella movie. And wouldn't it be mm-hmm. nice? But I've never met anybody who lives like this. Right. And that mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. is a person who's not a feminist. They've just been burned. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. So, yes, it does. Okay. So yes, it does. they're the ideological feminists. They're the committed Christians. This, yeah, this is wonderful. Teach me more how to do it. And then the people who are attracted to it because they're made in the image of God and th- this resonates with their nature, but not with their experience. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're going to want to, mm-hmm. before they go out on that frozen lake, they're going to want to throw a brick or two on it to, to see if it will hold them. And what would you say to those, to those women that are in that position? Like, yeah, that sounds amazing. I've never seen that before. Right. I'd say the guys, I would tell the women, guys are in the same position. Say more about that. Okay. Um, I get it, but uh, yeah, yeah. So right now I would say that, um, there I'm, I'm going to go up the stairs three at a time here, but I, Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of lamenting in Christian circles. Why don't Christian men get off their butt and, you know, go get married? Where where are all the good men? Uh, You know, uh, and it's sort of father's day, but, but here's the thing in, in Christian churches, on Father's Day, you can routinely go and find somewhere where they're going to kick the men around the sanctuary for, you know, time to step up, time to man up. What a bozo you're being. And, you know, and then just try to imagine the reverse mm-hmm. scenario on Mother's Day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So where where the women are told, <laughs> go to church on Mother's Day. And when was, when was the last time you cooked a pie? <laughs> so yeah um, we live in a culture that is hostile to men okay it's hostile to men hostile to masculinity and this shows up in who initiates divorce you know 70 percent of divorces are initiated by by the women i in that ballpark i'm not sure the exact number Mm -hmm. but but a lot and we wow. we live in a, we live in a culture where a man can have his life ruined if if he's accused of some sexual impropriety whether he did it did anything or or not he can so a lot what, basically what a lot what what has happened is a lot of men have gone on strike right um, they've they've just said deal me out you know I I don't I don't need all this drama and and I. And then this is an era where that is made por- pornography free and u- ubiquitous, free love. And why buy the cow when you can get the milk through the fence? Why, what's the, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've, you've got all these, yeah. all these inducements, um, some negative, some positive, not positive according to God's law, but some bribes, sure. some bribes, some threats. And uh, so, when a man, and this is where Gilder is so helpful, when a man gives mm-hmm. up his independence, and I'm going to speak mm-hmm. in crass transactional terms, when a man gives up his independence and promises to be with one woman for the rest of his life, what does he get in return? In modern America, mm-hmm. virtually nothing. Yes. Right? If his wife gets Very little. If, if his wife gets pregnant, she can make a decision to abort the child 
she and her doctor can make the decision to abort the child. And he, even though he's the lawful father and in covenant with her, is has no say in the matter. I mean, absolutely no say. So um, in that ethos, the, you have not just the abortion of the child, but the abortion of the family. So what Gilder, mm-hmm. what Gilder says is that if you want men to stick around, you have to have their constructive contributions honored and accepted and set apart. The men have to be invited to be men in the, in the household. And, and, so, and, and until that happens, you're going to continue to have men deliberately dragging their feet on marriage. So when I got married, and it was just a generation ago, when I got married, I got married when I was 22, and I was right in the middle of the pack. That's when it almost always happened. You you got married, you graduated from college, and you got married. Uh, you dated a girl your senior year, and you and okay, now I can I got a job, and I can start off. The average age of marriage now is like 28 or 29, and yeah. and that has really bad effects culturally and societally, societally, and and people don't understand that that is not the result of men screwing off. That's the result of the unremitting hostility that our society has toward con- constructive young men who want to lead and shape their homes. Mm-hmm. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. Women creating space, stepping back from ac- occupying that space in a competitive sense, just stepping back and allowing the young men to step forward is key to so much of this. And yet that is the most forbidden idea to even express that women should step back at all to invite men to step forward into the space that they had previously been occupying. Exactly right. Well, thank you so much for your generosity of your time today. Thank you so much for, for the, the work that you do. And uh, I'm looking forward to more exciting fireworks and okay. flamethrowers during, uh, during no quarter yeah, good. November. Um, where would you like to send men real quick? If you could send them anywhere at the end of this, where would you like to send them to find sure, out more? Sure, but probably the best thing to do is if they go to my blog, Blog and May Blog, and the address is dougwills.com. We've arranged it so on the front page of my blog, you, there's a portal to pretty much everything I'm involved in. Great. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Wilson. I, I greatly, I greatly appreciate this time to talk with oh, you today. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. <laughs>